Hey friends, this is Boss Barista. I'm Ashley Rodriguez. I am incredibly honored and thrilled to present this conversation with Sabine Parrish. She is a PhD student at Oxford University studying the anthropological angles around specialty coffee. And she published an amazing pamphlet called She's a Lady. If you haven't read it, please find a copy. It's incredible. It analyzes the way that women are often treated in coffee competitions and looks not just at competitions themselves, but the ways that women are coded into different positions within the coffee industry and are often passed over for promotions, technical training, what have you. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Sabine. My name is Sabine Parrish, and I am an anthropologist who studies specialty coffee culture in a variety of different countries. You are amazing. Let me just start there. Um, But you also (laughs) wrote this really amazing, along with writing about just specialty coffee in general, you wrote this really great pamphlet um, called She's a Lady, which was published in an issue of Standart, but you guys released this pamphlet at SCA last year. So can you talk a little bit about what She's a Lady is and what inspired you to write it? Absolutely. So She's a Lady was originally just an article that was scheduled to appear in Standart. Um, But as the world of printing goes, we had a couple of slight delays. We realized we weren't going to have the magazines in time for SCA. And we thought, actually, the content of this is really important. And we really want to get it to as many people as possible. Well, we haven't got our magazines. What are we going to do? And we just kind of on the fly came up with a plan to print these little kind of pocket sized booklets. Um, And it it turned out really well. We were able to get some to lots of people at SCA. Um, but the article itself, She's a Lady, was based off the results of my master's research that I conducted between 2014 and 2015. Um, and it talks basically in from an anthropological and research-orientated approach about uh, the difficulties that women specialty coffee baristas face in accessing um, accessing competition, coffee competition at all, and then accessing success within that realm. What got you interested in specialty coffee even to start? Uh, well, I don't know. I was just a surly teenager and my parents said, really, you need to go out and get a job and stop loafing around the house. Um, <laughs> so I somehow talked my way into a job at a local coffee shop. And um, I think they were the first wholesale account of Stumptown in uh, Washington State. And then sort of from there, I was like, oh, you know, I like this. So I worked as a barista for ages. I don't know how many years, eight or something. Um, And I, you know, honestly, I'm not I'm a totally mediocre barista, (laughs) Um, but I like the environment. I like the people. It's, you know, enjoyable work for me. Um, But as I was becoming more and more involved in academia, I realized that actually coffee is a really good thing to think through. And we kind of have this idea in anthropology uh, that Claude Lévi-Strauss, one of our, you know, famous French boring guys back from, you know, the 40s and 50s, you know, he said food is a really useful thing for anthropology because it allows us, you know, it's it's good to think through. Um, and I found that coffee has been that for me as well. Had you ever competed before? 
Uh, no, I have done a handful of latte art throwdowns and then I once very drunkenly competed in a latte art competition <laughs> held, held by Standart in Slovakia. All of the instructions were in Slovak, which I totally don't speak, uh, but I came in second. That was my crowning achievement in the competition realm and I decided to retire on top. Um, I won a carton of soy milk. I think that that's a noble a noble pursuit. Very good one. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the premise of She's a Lady. So it's this, <laughs> right. uh, or we could have fun and just talk about drunken times that we've competed in latte art competitions. That's also a fun, a fun realm we can go down. Um, but let's. I, I kept, I kept the soy milk carton for ages. And then eventually I just needed something to go with cereal for breakfast and I ate my prize. <laughs> That's great. I love that you kept it for like, you were like, I'm going to keep this. And then you're like, nah, nah. Yeah, it was totally on my shelf. <laughs> do you, would people like come in and be like, what, what, what is that? Why do you have soy milk in your room? <laughs> why is your, why do you have a shrine to this soy milk here? I don't understand. Yeah, it's great. Really, you know, weird Austrian, Central European soy milk. Awesome. <laughs> so you kind of start with this like really basic premise um, in She's a Lady. And like you start with this mm-hmm. question of why aren't there more women in coffee competitions? So can you start with like how you formulated this question and how that drove your research? Yeah. So, I mean, as I said, I'd worked as a barista for a really long time. I knew a fair number of people who were competing. I myself was never a competition barista. I wasn't really interested in it. I, you know, I think barista craft is a really valuable thing, but for me, it was very much, this is a job I do while I'm in school. And, you know, I now have not actively worked as a barista for quite a few years. Um, But just through some of the people I knew who were competing, you know, this, the presence of coffee competitions really quite captivated me. Um, you know, anthropologically speaking, competition itself is a really, really cool thing. So I'd been aware of coffee competitions for a while. And, and I just thought they thought they were super interesting. And then I actually, I started this project first looking at kind of what are, you know, the gendered experiences within the cafe workspace how how do these differ between men and women do they and if they do how so and then really really quickly it came up that this idea of competition was really important and people were feeling that they were not getting perhaps the access there so then I turned to looking at competition and you know it became clear really that very much the conversation around it was exactly this question why aren't there more women in coffee competitions and, you know, my job is, as a researcher, is to try and, if not wholly answer a question like that, to provide some insight. And my job is to ask the why questions, you know, about any answers we get. So why aren't there more women in coffee competitions? So many people would just say, well, men are more competitive. And I, you know, pretty much contractually obliged as an anthropologist to ask, well, why? Why are men more competitive. Are they? Have they only been socialized to be more competitive? Are they naturally more competitive? What are the conditions under which they are more competitive? What are the conditions under which women can also be competitive? And so from there, a whole world of many, many questions opened up. I think something that your paper does really well is that it breaks down kind of all the points in which gender discrimination can get in the way of somebody competing. So it's not just saying, like you were mentioning earlier, that men are more competitive, but even looking like at the cafe atmosphere, looking at the way that women are treated once they do compete, like you really take this like 
beautifully holistic approach, um, which is really interesting because I think you're right. A lot of people, when you ask them this fundamental question of why are women not competing, they'll kind of point to like one thing. And I think what your paper does really well is that it points to a number of different things. There's, there's many, many things involved. Um, but I do think it's always really important to try and get to, to the deepest level of asking these questions. Uh, not, I don't mean to say we're asking really profound questions, but we do need to basically follow the trail backwards. You know, where does this start? This doesn't start the day of the competition. This does not start when we are at the venue. It turns out it doesn't even start when we are training for a competition. You know, there are many, many points along the way where um, differential access and differential treatment and and kind of differential space for women within these structures can disadvantage them. Mm-hmm. So let's start, let's go backwards then. Let's start in the cafe before right. even a competition starts. Like okay. what are some of the things that... Um, and I think I think it's important. Like obviously, we're talking about the experiences of women, and you interviewed. You said four hundred and. So I sent out a survey online. Um, I had almost five hundred women complete it. Uh, in the end, four hundred and twenty-three were full usable responses, um, and then I did contact and do follow-up interviews uh, with 20-something of these women in depth. I also conducted interviews with people at competitions as well. Um, Yeah, so initially I'd done this survey and I thought, if I get 50 people, this would be great. I mean... This was a master's level project. Uh, You know, master's projects are, you know, they're for learning research methods. They're for learning how to place your research kind of within uh, the broader discipline. So I thought 50, 50 is going to be great. And then Sprudge did a little write up on it. And I was so inundated with responses that I had to shut down the survey several days later because I just, just drowning. Um, and then after I kind of reorganized myself, I was able to open it back up again. Um, and then once I hit 500, I was kind of like, okay, this is, this is a lot. This is more than I bargained for. The entire project was more than I bargained for in a lot of ways. I mean, as you can tell, it's, you know, it's now 2019. I started this five years ago and I'm, I'm still very much involved with and, and interacting with this. So 423 women, ultimately. Um, and basically what we can come to is that there are very significant differences in the ways that women and men experience the cafe workspace. And a lot of the women I spoke with really credited these differences with influencing both their access to competition and even their like will or desire to compete in the first place. Um, And so there were kind of uh, four primary points of workplace tension that we can break it down into. And that, that really women felt really, they they struggled with. And so the first one is the idea of masculine technical dominance. And, and this kind of, means scholars have identified this in in lots of different areas but it means as a society we oh just a little side note i only worked with baristas in the united states so i think my sample wound up representing baristas from 39 states and dc Um, i'll expand this to other countries eventually um, but so, yeah, masculine technical dominance is this idea that we're more comfortable 
seeing men do technological tasks. We believe that men are better or more naturally gifted or competent at uh, anything technologically related. And in our case, the espresso machine is, you know, is a really intensive technological instrument. And so this kind of idea of man as a better barista has to do um, in large part with with customers and just the entire kind of cafe space feeling that it's going to be better if the guy is on the espresso machine here. So the, the second area uh, then was emotional labor. And I mean, we could have a lot of conversations <laughs> about emotional labor. That, that was the one I read that I was like, Oh gosh, it reminded me of this one time I was um I was behind the bar and actually wrote about this mm-hmm. I think first stand art. Um I was behind the bar oh, yes. and uh, a man um was like clearly kind of like out of it and he uh, you know I I gave him his drink and he was he was fine and then he looked at me because I didn't engage with him. He was like, "You know, you're a real cold-hearted bitch." And then walked oh, out and I was God. like, "What expectation did this man have of me?" It just reminded me of that moment and it felt like really like mm. It it just felt oh, really I'm icky. Sorry that happened. No, it's all right. I mean, I got to I got to tell a story about it and <laughs> write about it. So, um, but that one really like resonated with me. So, can you talk? Yeah, talk a little bit more about emotional labor that women often experience over men. Yeah, exactly. So, emotional labor is basically sort of like the relational side of our jobs as service workers. And the thing is, of course, in customer service, everybody does perform emotional labor as we attend to customers and you know so this is this is relational work it is not uh, you know the technological work of putting together a coffee and so everybody needs to perform emotional labor and but basically it turns out that, that women need to do this much more so than men in the exact same work role they need to be much more kind, much more caring, uh, deferential. They need to behave in ways that are not expected of perhaps their male colleagues. Um, And so this emotional labor side uh, and expectations of women tied with our expectations of, you know, male technological skill means that women do the brunt of difficult emotional work within the cafe and also a lot of the cashiering. They do a lot more of the direct customer interaction. And yeah, so one of the things, one of the really, really big things, one of the fairly unique things about the United States that really ties into emotional labor um, is, is the next area that we identified as, as quite problematic for women in the, in the cafe. And that is the, just the interweaving of emotional labor and tipping because one of the really big emotional labor tasks that women perform in the cafe is this idea of the it's so-called job flirt is how it's referred to in the scholarly literature and and so the job flirt is not necessarily a real flirt there might not be any attraction between at least from me to the male customer that I, I'm serving at the at the cash register, um, but the job flirt is designed specifically to make the customer feel like you know they're they're valued as a customer, but also sexually uh, as a you know as a person. And there's a researcher who found that the waitresses performing job flirts class this as, as totally different from the flirting that they did you know outside 
outside of work. Um, but so many baristas, women baristas, said that the job flirt is pretty much required. They need to do this to get more tips. And it really contributed to kind of strained dynamics um, amongst uh, male and female co-workers. Um, and also it, it makes it harder or can even encourage sort of um, staying in dangerous or, or harmful interactions with customers uh, because tipping is, is so important and so ingrained in U.S. service culture, even when um, you know, you are receiving at least the federal minimum wage as a barista. You don't have the tip minimum wage of $2 and I think 13 cents an hour. And, you know, it is in everybody's immediate economic benefit as members of the low wage service working class, the precariat, who, you know, of course, we, we need more money to pay, pay our rent and meet our bills and, and to eat and, you know, not just the necessities to go out and live, you know, happy and fulfilled lives. Um, you know, when our take home pay can vary really drastically, of course, maximizing tips is in your immediate economic interest. But then it turns out that it may not be in the long term economic interest of women to be participating in the job flirt and the tipping system to this extent because it can lead to basically while my male co-worker Joe over there has done all of this uh, you know beautiful work making great coffees and I because we both need to make more tips today I Jane have stayed this whole time on the cash register and you know he's going to become unskilled as a better barista technically speaking when it comes time for promotions or for selecting somebody to go on and represent our company at competition if I have worked one hour fewer on the espresso machine each day of my working week and Joe has filled that time, that does add up enormously over time. So there's, there's no way we can say that, you know, naturally women are, are worse baristas than men, but it can often be that they are systemically and skilled as lesser baristas than men because they do not receive equal practice time within the cafe, daily work environment. And they also get passed over all the time. I had so, so many responses of women being passed over for any sort of professional development, outside training, anything that very, very frequently meant went initially to men, those offers. And I guess the, the fourth area that we identified as problematic within the cafe workspace um, was harassment, um, which again ties into emotional labor. You know, I can say we've you know, put together these four areas, um, but, you know, really all, all of these things are, are so entwined. Um, so I mentioned earlier that this study kind of became a much bigger thing than I thought it would. That was in terms of numbers of participants, um, but also sort of in its emotional magnitude for me as a researcher, because suddenly I was being deluged with hundreds of responses of people who had not felt listened to or were able to take um, comfort in the anonymity that I could guarantee in this to relate um, some of the realities of, of their working lives. And I was suddenly snowed under in just a heap of 
data that I really want to honor and do my best with, but that was also just depressing as shit to receive. I mean, yeah, uh, over 50% of my sample reported being harassed at least once a week while at work. I had numerous reports of, of rapes, very serious sexual harassment, um, stalkers, quite, quite common. Um, and so the, yeah, the magnitude of, of how bad, you know, workplace environments can be for, for baristas was just really, really staggering. Um, so there are a lot of kind of minor acts of harassment that women put up with daily that are just written off as, um, part of, part of the job. There's kind of verbal harassment. Women really picked up on, they hated being called sweetie, sweetheart, honey, babe. That's a we. Some people could argue that's not, that's not harassment per se. Um, but those, you know, the, might not always be perceived as threatening, maybe just annoying. Um, but they did sort of, there was often escalation. Like you said, uh, that, man in your coffee shop called you a bitch. I had so many reports of uh, people being called that and and much more. And then there's ways that um, a lot of women reported that if you're working, you know, behind a bar can be kind of a tight space. Uh, when male colleagues would pass behind them, they would do so while, while touching them on the waist in a way that they would never do to their male colleagues. Why? Why would why would that be okay for one colleague and not not another? And um, it's a so there there are many of these minor things that made women feel very uncomfortable within within a workplace. Um, but then there were also these major major acts of harassment, um, unwanted touching, patting, groping, uh, cornering people outside in the back when they've been taking out the trash. As I said, a number of stalkers and um, people would say really really heinous things. Um, I think one of the ones that really jumps out was uh, some, someone asked a customer uh, what they were ordering and, and they said, I'll have a soy flat white and my dick sucked. Oh, that's horrific. You know, yeah, but it, it's horrific. But, you know, I really hope that people listening to this realize that this is horrific, but it is also a near daily experience for many, many, many of your coworkers. I think something that kind of gets passed over, although we're kind of like hinting at it here, is that harassment isn't just like emotionally taxing and insulting and just the, the you know, the other deluge of other emotional responses mm-hmm. we have to it, but it's also financially it's a financial burden too like you were mentioning earlier women are getting passed over for promotions and a lot I was surprised by the number of women who reported that instead of um, being able to talk to their managers they left their jobs absolutely so yeah it means you might have your CV could look kind of a potential employer might look at it and go, gosh, why were you only at this company for four months? You know, maybe I think that says something about you as a worker when really it says that that was a really unhealthy work environment or, you know, management policies were really ineffective and, you know, harassment was running rife. It can have very serious, very devastating financial impacts on anyone being harassed, clearly not just women. Um, you know, this was the focus of my study was women. And I'd really like to, of course, expand it out to 
to, to other groups because it was so clear throughout the data that different identities and intersectional identities could, you know, things might be experienced as, as different or worse or compounded, and, you know, but as a, as a solo researcher at the master's level, you know, I had to draw the lines somewhere. Um, but what we definitely know is that for anyone who is being harassed in the workplace, that, that can be financially really, really devastating. Right. Of course, emotionally as well. But I mean, we're talking about workplace harassment. I mean, economics has to come into it at some point. It is workplace harassment. Right. And it's it's problematic, too, when we talk about looking at competition in terms of like judging or people who are running the show. Mm -hmm. And it's often people who have kind of advanced in their coffee careers. And when we look around and see like, hey, there are only people who look a certain way at these higher levels we have to consider like why that is and what financial opportunities Absolutely. are being afforded to to that barista level. Because I think like when you look at most coffee shops, it's, I would imagine, I don't know, I don't know if, I don't know what the numbers are on this, but you, I'd have to imagine that it's probably starts out pretty like even, like you probably get an equal mm-hmm. number of men and women. But then when you look at higher level jobs and job opportunities, that's kind of when you start to see it thin out. Yeah. I mean, why, why would I want to stay and continue to devote my time, effort, energy, emotional self into a company where I am treated poorly or unwanted or actively harassed? And uh, yeah, as I said before, women reported very frequently not receiving the same professional training opportunities as their male co-workers. Uh, it was very common for women to discover that all of the, you know, all the rest of the company went out every month or every week and they would not be invited. And sometimes it was just overlooked or, oh, we've always just been guys and, you know, we've, it was just, just the lads. You could organize something for the women. Um, but, you know, women would report being really uncomfortable drinking at events. And a lot of coffee events have a lot of alcohol consumption. Um, and these are networking events. These are really, you know, these are places to meet people who could help you further in your career. And and if you're starting from the starting point of I, I can't or I don't want to go there, this is going to be bad for me, of course you're missing out on opportunities. But it's not that you are missing out on opportunities. It's that the opportunities are being unequally presented. Exactly. So let's talk about what happens when you actually get to competition. So at the time that you wrote this, we hadn't had a female world barista champion yet. I know. Yeah. And I'm wondering what what that have have people like responded to you like well now we have a champion because I'm interested in that question because every time mm-hmm. every time I compete or every time like I see a number of women compete the response is always like it's always like a group standard it's always the idea that like look at all these women competing yeah. or like we fixed a problem it's almost like when Barack yeah. Obama became president and like racism was suddenly over was done yeah so like yeah. I wonder like what you think of like those kinds of statements and where they come from and how do we combat them yeah absolutely I definitely received you know some feedback in terms of that is oh well you know we've got a world barista champion now so yeah fuck yeah we do I was so happy I wasn't able to be there in Amsterdam this year but I watched it on the live stream and I bawled I was so happy and I know I'm not alone I was just you know I was still living in Brazil at the time I had a like badass group of women that were just selling you know my phone just lit up everyone was so happy it, it meant the world to so many people across the across the entire globe. Um, but one, you know, 
one victory doesn't mean that any of the structural problems underlying any of this has been changed. Clearly, clearly they haven't. And, you know, if you, if you look at, um, what she had to do to, you know, train for a competition and leave, uh, you know, kind of effectively leave, leave her day-to-day job working as a barista. Um, you know, it's, there were so many sacrifices being made that if someone didn't have, you know, other support systems, like could, could not happen. So we were like, structurally, there's still a huge problem here, even though, fuck yeah, we have a lady champion. The other thing is that, you know, of course the WBC is not the only championship. It is the WBC um, and the USBC were the, were the only ones I really looked at for the purposes of this research. Again, we have to make boundaries somewhere as much as I have questions about absolutely everything in, in order for research to, you know, be plausible and doable. You know, we've got to, we've got to set limits for ourselves somewhere, but I mean, we've had coffee masters winners that weren't men and I think one of the really interesting and exciting things about Coffee Masters as a competition is that, well, basically some of the other competition formats don't, they only test a very specific set of barista skills. And as we've kind of seen with how men are privileged in the technical side of the cafe workspace, uh, this is kind of a, a structural issue in terms of how women are going to do really well. The, the skills that women um, you know, are particularly celebrated for or used to performing in the cafe workspace are not always the ones being judged in a competition format like the USBC. And there's a little bit more room for that in uh, something like Coffee Masters. Boom, we've had, I think, at least two winners who were women in Coffee Masters. So, you know, it's sometimes looking at um, formatting issues and, and what is valued and, and what we place importance on in terms of what makes a good barista, in terms of what makes the ideal barista, because these are basically ritual sites where we negotiate what is the ideal barista, who is an ambassador, right? And um, yeah, so there's been one female WBC winner, but we still culturally have an idea that a barista is a guy who's probably got a beard, um, <laughs> you know, I, and so yeah, the problem hasn't changed until there's space within that ideal, within that cultural touchstone and marker for what a barista is, for a barista to look many different ways. Something that I was kind of struck by as I was reading this was the story about Sarah Anderson, who won the 2015 U.S. Brewers Cup competition. Mm -hmm. And the namesake of this uh of this article comes from that mm-hmm. as as she was announced the winner the song she's a lady started playing which is so it seems like so shockingly inappropriate to me and and to you as well i imagine but at the same time represents this idea that women women never get to just compete for themselves or is always like laden meaning behind their victories and it's always like mm-hmm. four women and i wonder like is that harmful at all? And how do we start to sort of differentiate women beyond these like represented, like representations of like champions as opposed to champions in and of themselves? Yeah, I think it is a, it's a difficult thing because 
Yeah, particularly in the competition sphere, at least as far as coffee is concerned. Um, you know, a, a female competitor is is a female competitor. The qualifier is always necessary. And so that, um, this kind of goes back to the idea of what, what the ideal barista is, what is what space uh, for whom is included in this, this ideal barista. So yeah, when that song came on for Anderson, you know, I'm sure the intention behind it was like, fuck yeah, great, she's a woman, which is, yeah, fuck yeah, great, she's a woman. But that's not what we were there to be doing, judging, or celebrating, right? This is someone who has just executed the most amazing technical, sensory, you know, brilliant service skills all, all together. We're here to celebrate a barista. And, you know, so that was the year that um, Charles Babinski became um, the U.S. Uh, barista champion. And, you know, they didn't call him up and say, put on a song about being a man and say, oh, yay, the male competitor, Charles Babinski, right? So the, the, we're clearly seeing that the default, what does not require any sort of qualifier, any kind of additional thing, is a man. And yeah, the same year um, the US Latte Art Champion was uh, was announced and that the host said, uh, it's something like, oh, she's making sure the females represent. You know, why why was that part of her identity pulled up? Because I think either the second or third place winner in the Latte Art Championship was her brother. So why was it not the the Chun family represents? Uh, they owned, uh, as a family, they owned a coffee shop. Why is it not this coffee shop is representing? And um, I I believe they were Korean American. Why why was it not making sure Korean Americans represent? I mean, so there there's an attempt sometimes when we try to be very vocal about our inclusion of other groups that can actually serve as a sort of means to flag up difference where difference is not actually particularly salient. Um, yeah, well, I mean, there, there's so many identities that we hold. Why is it this one that we need to flag up and say a woman has just won this? Well, it's because we've all seen that there's a problem with women and other groups of people are not entering competition or succeeding in them at the same sort of numbers um, as particularly white men are. Well, if we if we really make a big you know alarm and alert when a woman has done it, we can kind of turn back and say, see, see, we did it, right? Like we are inclusive as we want to be. And, you know, I think, I definitely think the demographics are getting better, but of course we're not as inclusive as we want to be. And, and this just, this isn't the time to be running around patting ourselves on the back. This is the time to be, be changing how the systems work. So I think that's, that's kind of the danger um, in this, you know, really clear flagging of success of difference. Right. It seems, yes. It seems like Sarah Anderson's win is almost like a pat on our own back saying like, look what happened, we did this versus someone like Charles's victory is like, look, he did this. Exactly. I mean, and so much of the discussion after he won was like how deserving he was of it because I mean, he'd come in second a couple of years running and he's got these really great like 
really amazing and technical and awesome businesses. And it's just so good to see him and his company represented. Um, and the, the same treatment isn't applied to other competitors who did not fit the, this ideal barista mold. So. So what was the response to this? Did you get, I mean, obviously you had a lot of people reach out to you when you were doing the initial survey, which is incredible and also speaks to the idea that there's a lot more work to be done. But what was the response once you published this? Um, when I published it, it was awesome, actually. I, well, I mean, this, this piece took a lot of, you know, emotional work on my end um, to to make sure I was treating respectfully and representing and doing the best I could with all of the trust that 423 women had placed in me. And so I was terrified when this went out because, because I wanted people to know and I wanted it to help some, you know, someone, anyone out there to let people know they're not alone if anything is happening, to let uh, stakeholders at various different parts of the you know, the cafe sort of world, um, perhaps have a, some food for thought. And I, I got really, really positive, positive feedback. I, people started sending me messages out of the blue and saying, just like, thank you. And I'm not alone. And which is exactly what I, I hoped would have happened. But I was still just so surprised when people started sending me these things. I was living in Brazil at the time, and I, I brought back a bunch of copies and um, I just kind of put them up, you know, on Instagram, said, you know, send me your address, I'll send them to you. Um, and within seven minutes, I was out of them, even though they were printed in English. Um, because there was a, you know, it's, while the study was focused on the United States, this is not somewhere, not something isolated to the United States. The tipped aspect, uh, I think, does make it, uh, I don't know, I don't want to say worse, but sometimes perhaps more focused or takes on a different dimension in the U.S. than, than elsewhere. Of course, there's going to be local flavor and variation um, in different sort of cafe cultures and, and workplace uh, you know, infrastructures. Uh, of course, it, it won't, the exact experience of baristas in Sao Paulo, where I was living, will not look like the exact experience of women baristas in Seattle. Um, but there was clearly enough shared sentiment and, and baristas in Brazil reaching out and saying, well, can you come like look at, look at our culture? Because I've, I've experienced a lot of these similar things. Um, so yeah, eventually when I'm done with my other 17 projects, I'll really try to <laughs> try to go back to, you know, so I just, so many people have, have come up to me over the last few years now that they, you know, they kind of know, Oh, um, I'm the one that, that does this. And I mean, I've had, I've had baristas, you know, corner me in, in bar bathrooms in Berlin and pour out stories and, you know, Ireland and all across Europe and so many different places. So it, it is not just the U.S. And yes, the research was done in the U.S., but that does not mean that it could not be relevant or useful or at least a point of departure for consideration or hopefully anybody else wanting to do research on this in any other cultural context. We need other people out there to take up this. I was about to say, if you're going to do research on all these different countries, that's going to require <laughs> no. that's a lot of time um, on your part. But
but no. there's there's definitely a lot of research to still be done um yeah. and it, there's there just seems to be such a need for story collection too and creating spaces for people to share their stories yeah absolutely and i think i mean story collection and sharing is just absolutely huge and it's essential and we've really seen that the power of that over the last kind of two years with the rise of me too and a greater public space for kind of coming out with these things i do think that's what i as an academic can offer is i can you know i can take some of these stories i can collect in a way where I can guarantee anonymity and, you know, I, I have many ethical procedures and protocols that I must follow and I can create hopefully something in the end that provides an overview, an introduction, something as objective as possible that people can then evaluate on, on their own terms that can add something to the discussion that gets a little bit, you know, sometimes we're just yelling at each other, but, you know, in, in academic work, you know, I can just leave to be evaluated by others as needed. I feel like I could talk to you forever about <laughs> a number of issues that are, are brought up in this paper and just in general, the work that you do. But what would you want people to leave with after reading something that you've written or thinking about the research that you've done? What's like some of the takeaways that you hope are transformative or really impact people? I did have one survey respondent directly say what mirrored something you spoke about earlier in this conversation, which was, she said, just because people see us in the competition, they see that we're there and they think it's okay. Um, but I, I really hope that, that anything I do or anything we do as a community, um, that we begin to look at the underlying structures that you know changing the heights of the tables at the competition is great it is so great but it won't change things three steps back uh, you know it's, it's kind of the same thing there's a lot of debate right now about how do we get more women involved in you know stem careers how do we get more women into stem tracks at university right okay so to get more women into stem careers we need them entering more in you know these programs and universities okay well that's not going to start when they're 17 right we need that early care and intervention you know at, at the primary school level right Okay, we don't need perhaps, you know, barista craft intervention at the primary school level because we're not necessarily making coffee when we're seven. But we need to take that multi-step approach within our own community. We need to say we need to be having these interventions and these thoughts about the structures that we're operating in and how we can change them. We need to be having these things early at the cafe. If, if we want anything to change in the realm of competition, we must change the cafe space. Absolutely. Sabine, thank you so much for writing this and just being, just willing to take a deep dive into, <laughs> I think the things that we all kind of know happen at competition, but a lot of us just don't really have the space or the words to to put into a language that's you know common for everybody. Um, where can people reach out to you or find you? Uh, yeah, so you can always find me through Standart, where I am a staff writer, and that's standartmag.com. Um, but you 
oh, I was going to say you could go to my website and you can, except I still haven't updated it. So it's all in Portuguese. So you can go to my website if you speak Portuguese or you would like to learn Portuguese. Um, that's sabine.coffee. It is also sabine.coffee at Instagram. Um, and my email address is on my website if you have anything you'd like to talk to me about. Um, I'm a little slow at emails, but I do respond eventually. And finally, what's what are you working on next? What's the future look like for you? Oh, my goodness. Um, I'm three years into my doctorate right now. So I've just come back from a year researching in Sao Paulo, Brazil. Um, and I'm working with specialty coffee still, but not really in the realm of gender. Um, so there's sort of a two-pronged approach to my dissertation right now. So I'm looking at how kind of value creation and the values within a specialty coffee community in what is you know, traditionally been classed as a producing country. How do those differ from um, just strictly consuming countries? And particularly how have Brazilian trade policies and economic situations um, changed how specialty coffee operates within uh, the consumption sphere there? Uh, because it's illegal to bring in green coffee uh, from any other countries. So basically all of the specialty coffee consumed in Brazil is Brazilian coffee unless you want to smuggle, which plenty of people do. Um, but then I'm also, yeah, using specialty coffee uh, within Brazil uh, to look at alternate forms of basically non-politicized national pride uh, in relation to sort of the right-wing populist turn and nationalist turn. That's been happening across a lot of countries recently. Um, but, you know, with the recent election of Brazil's new president, uh, for, for sort of, I guess, lefties like us, you know, how, how then can I... How then do I reconcile being in this country? How how can I still make pride? Because as a human, you ha you have to you have to make pride, right? That's as our communities, we have to do this. Um, and so, using the the national specialty coffee discourse as an alternate form of basically kind of proxy nationalism, non politicized uh, nationalism. Um, so that's what I'm doing right now. And I'm also ruining the lives of future anthropologists uh, because I started teaching undergraduates. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I'm actually teaching a really cool class right now where we're using anthropological theory to basically create an analytical framework for looking at and understanding um, kind of the, the spread um, and uh, just general context of fake news. And uh, next term, I'm teaching a class I designed that's all about the politics of access and social distinction um, using specialty coffee as our jumping off point. So I'm really excited for that one. Will, will you teach me that class? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Sure, I'll, I'll send you the syllabus. Oh, I would love that. <laughs> um, I mean, just a, just a little like Ner moment of uh, nerdiness. I majored in yeah. sociology at the University of Chicago, and I wrote oh. a um, I wrote an ethnographic study of my mock trial team, and it reminded oh me God. so much of this. I was like, you know, doing you're such a nerd. Oh. Mock trial? Oh yeah. Oh, that's worse than me. It's bad. It's really <laughs> bad. Um, it's a four. It was a forty person team. We were divided into oh, eight wow. teams of five. They were ranked. So there was a lot of like coding Ooh. of skill and oh, it was great. Um, and this oh is like God. making me very nostalgic for it. Ah, uh, yes, everybody, if you can, I know that, you know, education is a difficult thing to access. Anybody and everybody who can should really, I think, take 
any kind of social science class that they can get their hands on. It gives you a really good toolkit for looking at and engaging critically with the world. So yeah, if you have any questions for me about this research in particular or about the research that I do in Brazil, you can always send me a message. But I'm also really happy to pass along you know, any resources on basically learning to think anthropologically or just kind of different social sciences approaches to um, how to be a, I don't know, engaged coffee professional. Thank you for taking the time to talk to me. And uh, thanks to everybody listening for being part of Boss Barista. Bye, everyone. Boss Barista is made by me, Ashley Rodriguez, in collaboration with Good Beer Hunting, which is an industry-leading design studio, editorial platform, and podcast examining all the ways we look at the things that we eat and drink. You can check out more at goodbeerhunting.com. Seriously, their stories are incredible. My favorite series right now is the Humanity and Hospitality series that they've been running for the past couple of months, examining different ways that we look at people in the service industry. Special thanks to Jesse Raub and Jordan Stalling. Also, special thanks to our music contributors, the band Lost in the Sun. You've made this podcast sound incredible. I'm just looking for a better.